the Collective Whisper Podcast with Simon King. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Collective Whisper Podcast. On this show, I'm going to be speaking to Earl Grey Anderson. Earl Grey Anderson is MUFON's Chief Investigator and Assistant State Director in Southern California. A member of Kathleen Marsden's Experiencer Research Team in MUFON, Earl has personally closed over 650 UFO cases and Experiencer contactee cases. An Experiencer himself, Earl has an innate sense of empathy and compassion while understanding those who have personally encountered the high strangeness elements of the phenomenon. Earl lives in the West San Fernando Valley area of Southern California with his wife Lisa and their two cats, Thor and Jeden. The Mutual UFO Network, MUFON, is an American-based non-profit organization that investigated cases of alleged UFO sightings. It is one of the oldest and largest civilian UFO investigative organizations in the United States. MUFON claims 3,000 members worldwide with chapters in every U.S. state. The group maintains a number of investigators who undergo training administered by MUFON. When it comes to UFOs, Earl holds several positions with the Mutual UFO Network. He's Assistant State Director for Southern California, Chief Field Investigator and a member of MUFON's STAR team. He is also a licensed vocational nurse and he has worked as a guitarist, vocalist, singer and songwriter. Here he tells me all about his experiences with UFOs and other people's experiences. Welcome to the show, Earl. How are you? Doing quite well, Simon. Thank you. It's great to have you. Are you, you're in Southern California, but are you in the San Fernando Valley or where are you exactly? Yes, I'm in the San Fernando Valley. Uh, I'm a, a Southern California native, grew up here, uh, all, been here all of my life. Wow. And right now, I'm sure like the temperature, is it like a, is it an Indian summer or what's the weather like there right now? It's always, it's always Indian summer here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we have a little yeah. cooler in the mornings now, but it, it gets hot. Uh, you know, it looked like we might get some rain yesterday, and now today it's just it's raining sunshine again. So, uh, you know, you know, how would you describe the the landscape of the current kind of California with COVID with everything? Would you say that it's, hmm. things are going well there, or is there a cause for concern with COVID? The numbers are getting better. Finally, they're looking up in Los Angeles. Thankfully, you know, uh, they they uh, they seem to be finally on the downswing. We see more live music happening, more live events and such, and uh, and this is good. I mean, perhaps, hopefully, I'm hoping enough people have gotten vaccinated now that we're gonna, you know, actually reach herd immunity. Uh, we'll see. You know, Eileen, last last year it was looking pretty good, uh, and then it did. Then we our numbers started going up again. You know, now we had a little upswing uh, at the uh, you know end of summer, but now it seems to be going down again, and it seems to be a constant thing. So hopefully we're done. You know, <laughs> and and you because you work as a nurse as well, so. I'm actually retired. Are you now. are you on the front line as such? No, I I actually have retired from nursing. I'm I'm doing uh, UFOs full time as a full time thing nowadays. So wow, that was really good. Wait, when did you retire? Uh, about oh, it's just been a few months now, maybe three or four months. It became official. 
you know? Yes. And, you know, the the amazing thing about when a, a lot of people retire, you know, there's always this thing, oh, they retire and they drop dead the next day or, you know, they don't know what to do with themselves. But for you, it sounds like you were looking forward at that time to do more investigations, no? Yes, I'm, I'm very, very busy, uh, you know, working with the with the mutual UFO network is like a full-time job. Um, we're a volunteer organization and, and it should be that way because people are not doing this. They're, they're doing it for love of the phenomenon and trying to understand what's happening on our planet. So it's not a money thing. It's not, uh, you know, a fiscal dynamic. It's, uh, it's about, uh, it's about the heart and it's about uh, wanting to see, wanting to understand something that's maybe the most interesting is the most interesting thing happening on the planet i believe wow yeah and recently of course there's been lots of lots of changes you know so before we kind of get into all of that because there's so much to talk about and everything i want to go back a bit and, and you know talk about your your early life and you know because obviously i believe that influences a lot of what you do now so, so tell us a little about your, your early life and, you know, where you were born and about your parents and everything. Sure. I was born in Santa Monica, California, uh, back in 1958. I don't mind telling you. <laughs> and uh, I grew up in, 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 in the first little bit was in, in uh, Venice, California, uh, there by the beach. Uh, and when I was about five years old, we moved to Thousand Oaks, California. At that time, there there were thousands of oak trees there. It was quite beautiful. Now it's kind of joined the urban sprawl as much of uh, Southern California, unfortunately, has. But uh, back then, I had a big backyard, a big front yard. You know, we had sheep grazing on the front yard that would start eating the lawn sometimes from across the street. Uh, where is a property where they would use... Uh, sheep and they allow these shepherds these uh basque shepherds to bring their sheep there and and graze and it would keep the fire hazards down but uh yeah it would wake you up like six in the morning you'd hear the little bells around their necks it's not like that now yeah because that like even that picture in my mind now when you said the thousand oaks and having obviously the oak trees and maybe nice valleys there and the sheep and the the, the shepherds but now it's suburbia no Correct. It, it went from uh, being quite pastoral to uh, the urban sprawl now. It, it is suburbia, but it's the city of Thousand Oaks. Uh, it used to be, very, you know, I mean, the closest store you would have to drive six, seven miles to find a grocery store. And, and it was just all, you know, it was all hillsides and undeveloped land. It was beautiful. And, and, uh, and that's where I spent my youth. It was a good uh, a good place to grow up. Uh, it was very uh, there. There was a kind of a a music scene going on in that little town of Thousand Oaks. Going back then, obviously, when you were young, and you had mentioned your mom, your mom worked in that kind of aerospace industry as such. Uh, tell tell us about that, like as a young boy, and you know the 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 memories you have of your mom working within that industry. Sure. Well, my mom, when I was very, very young, I was about five years old, my mom uh, sort of spilled about her other secret life that she had before she'd married my dad. You know, she had become a, a, when I was born in 1958, my mom became a, 
a, a housewife, but before that, she worked for Howard Hughes at, How at uh, Hughes Aircraft. She was one of Howard Hughes's two uh, personal secretaries. He had two of them, and uh, he liked to. He he you know he he was uh, he did have the aversion to uh, being around people. He was a germaphobe and had OCD. That all that stuff is true about him. So he would talk with uh, my mom over an intercom system. Uh, she worked with him for about five years, but she said over those five years, even though her office was next to his, she only saw him once. And that was at the end of the day, he would go first. He would leave the facility and they would get it all clear and then everybody else would leave. Well, they screwed up one day and they gave the all clear too soon. So there was this long hallway from the office to the parking garage. And my mom opened the door and there's Howard Hughes, like, walking towards the door and she said it was very Chaplin-esque you know he had his hat on he had a briefcase he turned around and kind of shuddered open got to the door as quickly as he could and left and that was the first that was the first and only time my mom actually saw Howard Hughes but she talked to him every day and she told me that he used to send her out to secret facilities that she worked in an underground city that was under the desert uh, at that time, when I was a kid, this was like 1963 when she told me th about this, uh, people didn't really know that we had those. Now we do know that we've, you know, it's very common. They call them uh, deep underground military bases or dumbs. And she worked in, in, in one with, uh, she said that there were German scientists that uh, we had acquired after the Second World War. Uh, she said that she knew Werner von Braun, that he was a, a colleague. And she said he was a charming man. I got a little older. It's like, he's a Nazi, Mom. And she, she said, well, he, he wasn't really. He did what he had to do to survive in, in Nazi Germany. Yes, and, and I, I always think with Werner von Braun, von Braun, you know, the fact is, obviously, he came into the American military and worked with NASA and everything then. And he did a lot for American aerospace and aeronautical innovation. So... You know, I, I think when it came to the Nazis being relocated, they ended up in all walks of life in America and other countries in Britain, too, in order to help that country. No. Yes. That, that was the trade off. They more or less gave them a ultimatum. You're either uh, you're a patriotic American now or else you're going to prison for the rest of your life. And uh, he, he became a patriotic American really quickly, apparently. And he was, you know, I mean, he got us to the moon. That's that's what he did. He it was he was responsible for, uh, you know, the three stage uh, system of rocketry that we used. Uh, you know, Robert Goddard was our, you know, the big rocket scientist here in America. But uh, we didn't have a, a, a Werner von Braun. They were ahead of us in the game, you know, uh, with the V two rockets and all that stuff. Um, and apparently he told my mom once, he said that during the war, we built the rockets correctly, but we sent them to the wrong planet. In other words, they went crashing down on Liverpool instead of going to the moon, which was his dream. Liverpool is another planet, but not the one they were looking for. <laughs> yes. And of course, I'm a Beatles freak, you know, so everything seems to be interconnected. You know, because that was the other big thing that happened. Yeah, maybe that's where the Beatles came from. 
I know that they grew up in that war-torn area. They played in the uh, wreckage from the war. Uh, they didn't get it cleaned up very quickly in Liverpool. You know, it was kind of a working-class town. Uh, so, and of course, the Beatles came from that. Same year that my mom, blah, you know, became loquacious uh, about what she had done and the work she had done, uh, it was also the year that we, you know, the Beatles played on the Ed Sullivan show. And that, that for me was vital that, you know, I was five years old. I think that I was just old enough to understand that this was something special that, uh, you know, we had grown up with Elvis Presley and Frank Sinatra and all that stuff. Uh, by the time I was born, rock and roll was kind of done. Uh, they were going back to the crooners, you know, uh, but, but, but the Beatles were so exciting and, 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 and it was, they were playing their own instruments or writing their own songs. And as a five-year-old, I remember my parents, they were making fun of their hair and, but they, they were entranced too. And it was a black and white TV and we were all gathered around that. And, uh, it made quite the impression, uh, you know, that's what I wanted to do. Did, did that, did that kind of spur you on to pick up the guitar then at an early age and start playing? Oh yeah. Yes, it did. <laughs> I, I started, you know, I, I wanted, uh, I wanted a guitar. Uh, actually, I wanted drums is what I wanted originally. And, and my parents were, were wise enough to not go that route because, it you know, it's kind of a noisy uh, thing to, to, to live around. Uh, so they, they started out with keyboards and such. And, uh, but when I got a guitar, I was 12 years old and that, I went to like a, a, you know, fish to water. It was, you know, and I immediately started writing my own songs because I only knew three chords at that point. So I could play kind of simple Buddy Holly tunes and, and maybe some of the more simple songs by the Beatles. But if I, if I wanted to have a repertoire, I had to write my own stuff, you know, then I started learning some of the, I learned E minor. That was wonderful you know when i started learning some of the minor chords and you you went down you went down the darker route <laughs> oh yes absolutely and you know as time went on you know i i got the right you know i had one guitar two guitar teachers one was strictly the jazz guy and he was wonderful even though he wasn't teaching me what i wanted to learn uh he was still the right teacher because that with through him, I learned diminished chords and augmented, you know, I, I, I learned more than just the basic, you know, four chords that, you know, that, that so many people kind of depend on. And after that, I, I, he graduated me to a, a younger guy who was a blues player. And he told me, he, I loved this guy because he came up to my mom. He said, well, I have an assignment. He need, he needs some, certain LP records, you know, and it was, you know, Eric Clapton and John Mayall blues breakers. And, and, uh, you know, he had this list of people that he wanted me to have their albums to listen to, you know? And, uh, and so we went to the store and we got, you know, quite a nice, uh, stack of <laughs> blind faith i think and and clapton uh working with uh you know the yardbirds early stuff and and uh and he was really a wonderful teacher and kind of got me playing lead and and uh it just opened up for me and and that was that was what my life really was from age 
12 until, you know, 10 years ago, maybe I, I became, I kind of got, I decided to, to do the UFO thing, but not just read about it. I wanted to go hands on. And so now I've got like music and, and UFOs, however you balance that. I, I seem to be able to. In between that, obviously, when, you know, because you were a musician and stuff, but then you became a nurse as well. Was that later in life or did you do that at a young age? That was how I was, how I was able to support myself. I, I got an early job as more or less transportation, a wheelchair pusher at the local hospital. Okay. I was 17 years old. And then I, uh, they uh, graduated me up to become their orthopedic tech, which I had to, you know, be trained to do. That was setting up traction setups. And from that, I would carry around a beeper. This was around 1982, maybe 81. And they would call me at three in the morning to set up a traction setup if somebody was in a car accident. And I would actually have to go into the operating room and help, you know, get the patient into the traction stuff. You know, we do skeletal traction where it would actually, you know, they'd put a pin in the knee and stuff. So I was doing all this and I decided I might as well just become a nurse. I'm already doing that kind of stuff. So I might as well get paid properly for it. So that, you know, was, was my, uh, and, and I loved doing my nursing. I did it up until, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, my knees started giving out and I've, you know, all nurses eventually wind up with back problems, unfortunately, especially if you're a male nurse. Uh, if you're my age and you're a male nurse back in the day, they would call you to lift every single patient. And eventually that wreaks havoc on your, you know, destroys your back. So, uh, but I did that up until uh, a couple years ago. Uh, I thought I was going to continue doing it. And my, my, uh, my doctor and people just finally said, no, you're, that's it. You either have to do a desk job or retire. You know, when you obviously were, were nursing and you were playing music as well, was there a time then when you were younger where you thought, okay, I can, you know, do music full time? Or did you always think, you know, I have to balance a, a normal job between the, a normal job and the music and so on? I, one of those guys like that movie, Almost Famous, I mean, you know, there were certain periods where I was playing uh, regular gigs at uh, this one club that was on Melrose and Fairfax, uh, where I was filling the place up and they were going to name things on the, you know, it was called Genghis Cohen Cantina. And a lot of, a lot of really good people uh, played there, you know, it was uh, some ace acts. Uh, Mick Taylor played there. The Rolling Stones had a regular gig. Uh, Mick Taylor from the Rolling Stones. Uh, people like, uh, uh, oh goodness, but it, it was just it was a very good place to play. And and I had you it know, was a hot spot. Yes, and I had the interest, but you know, as the way it goes, I mean, you have to have the talent, you have to have luck, and you have to be in the right place at the right time and meet the right people. And, uh, you know, it just, uh, I, I, I played gigs. I, I was, I was recognized as a uh, new artist of the year back in 1994 when I played over at the Troubadour. Uh, I played, and, and also what I didn't mention was, was back in the, the late 1970s, I played uh, guitar in a black 
a gospel funk band. And we actually recorded an album at Warner Brothers Studios. Uh, we, we opened for every great R&B artist. We opened up for Marvin Gaye. We opened up for, for uh, Reverend Al Green. We opened up for uh, Andre Crouch and the Disciples. We opened up for, we, we, and we, you know, we, we, we were on TV and stuff. We actually were, we won the gong show when the gong show was a thing. And uh, so, you know, the music seemed like it was going to be my bread and butter. And plus, I knew a lot of my favorite musicians were friends, you know. I mean, L.A. is kind of a close-knit music community. Obviously, if you were born in 58, you grew up, obviously, in the swinging 60s and but in the flower power 70s. So were you actually playing music in the 70s? You know, was was it like... Because I, I was born in 73, and of course, I was in Ireland, but I can imagine in California in the 70s, that whole flower power scene was like really strong. Oh, sure. I mean, when even when we were in Venice, California, when I was a little kid, well, you saw your first hippies in Venice. That, it, it, people talk about it coming from San Francisco, but that's not really true. Uh, you know, that there is a place called the... the uh, Oh, what is it called? They have, there's a little cafe there on, on the uh, boardwalk of Venice Beach. And, and people like Ellen Ginsberg and Kerouac and all the beat poets hung out over there. Uh, and there was kind of a, a burgeoning art scene that was, you know, I mean, the, the band The Doors, uh, of course, were probably the best known band that came from that scene. Uh the band Love came from that area and and, and, and that scene. And uh, I remember about 1963, the guys with longish hair would be walking towards the beach, and my dad would go, "Hello, girls," you know. <laughs> so it was kind of the, for the beginning of the hippie movement. It was a lot earlier than 1966. I think you know San Francisco eventually caught up with with what was going on in other bohemian areas, and then it became worldwide. And of course, the Beatles, they spread that like, you know, that that was the new thing, of course. All you need is love. Yeah, it's very interesting. I, I was in Venice Beach, I think, in two, like in the in, end of 2019 or October 2019. And, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a it's an amazing place and there's so many different types of people. And what was interesting as well when I was there, it was it was a new era because now they were selling marijuana in the, the shops, you know? So obviously if for years they had been smoking it around there, but they weren't selling it. But so I was saying to my wife, I said, it's crazy because this has always been kind of, you know, the symbol of, you know, free love and, and, and freedom Venice beach. And now it's even more free. <laughs> yes, that's true. Well, now, you know, a lot of those people grew up and now have arthritis, et cetera. So <laughs> it's, it's a little less caustic than some of the opioids and things that the doctors of course, to of course. put out there. So then, you know, like, obviously, just before we kind of leave your teenagers, when you were in school, and you were into astronomy and stuff. Did you have any aspirations to kind of go into, like, go to university to work with astronomy? Or was it something you thought, this could be a job for me? Well, growing up, it was a space age. And my mom knew, you know, I mean, my mom had 
met John Glenn and some of the astronauts and stuff in her work. And so it, it seemed like it wasn't out of reach, but my math skills were never very good. That's the problem. You know, I, at one point I wanted to see about possibly joining the air force, becoming a pilot and then becoming an astronaut. You know, I just really wanted to fly the space shuttle. And thankfully I had a, a couple of, you know, Top Gun pilot friends that that took me aside and said, Earl, you're going to wind up changing the oil under a Jeep. You don't want to do that. You know, <laughs> you, you have to have a natural propensity for the maths. I'm just very right brained. You know, I mean, it's very easy for me to go and and read uh, Ulysses by James Joyce or, or, or Tolstoy or, you know, that that was just very, very you know, or, or read the Greek poets, you know, Aeschylus and Sophocles and all those guys, uh, that, yeah, heck yeah, you know, but you, you, you put more than, uh, you know, you put an algebraic equation in front of me and, and, uh, uh, yeah, that's not so much fun, you know, <laughs> thankfully in my nursing work, you know, it would be mostly multiplication, you know, division and, how many patients? I I thought I put in four, and there's only two yeah. <laughs> left. <laughs> yes, but I did a lot of hands-on nursing privately. I I took care of a lot of. I actually worked for uh, Dick Clark at one point. I took care of oh, really? Clark at the at the Dick Clark Mansion. I mean, this is the thing about Los Angeles, especially Hollywood and those areas. I mean, it's easy to meet your heroes, especially, you know, if, if you're a nurse and, and you're not daunted by working for, for famous people, they, they get sick and their families need to hire nurses. Once you get into that loop, um, they get you out, you know, and, and uh, as long as you don't act like an idiot, you don't ask for autographs and things like that, you treat them professionally. Um, and, and so that was always a thing. And then we had the original Guitar Center in Hollywood. Now, the new Guitar That's Center right. is different. But the one that used to be on Sunset Boulevard back in the 70s and 60s, I mean, I met Rory Gallagher there. He's just wow. sitting on an amp, blue work shirt, you know, red hair, like all over the place, a pack of Marlboros rolled up, you know. And he'd play in a Stratocaster sitting on this amp. You know, it's just like, I, oh, my God, that's Rory, you know, <laughs> is one of you guys, you know, and from Ireland. A phenomenal player, you oh. know, like it was amazing because R Rory Gallagher, obviously, you know, who would have thought such a good blues guy would such come from Ireland guy. where, you know, you know, it was very strange. But, you know, you guys are the black Irish. So, you know. <laughs> yes, we're the black yeah, Irish. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> so I suppose. If the Black Irish have a different type of blues, you know. Yeah, what was that? Uh, the movie, The Commitments, you know, or is the, the yes, yeah. I'm black and I'm proud, right? <laughs> I'm black and I'm proud. <laughs> it was great, and and Rory Gallagher kind of epitomized that because he 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 had that playing, which was a mixture of all these styles and you know these blues styles, oh, but it was wonderful. very very original, and he had that voice as well. So oh, yeah. he was just he was just that. I, I remember once I was busking i started out playing music as a busker and uh, i met this guy came up and he asked me could he play the guitar and um he played it like the other way around you know left hand right hand guitar but played it around flipped around 
And then I learned afterwards he was what's his name? He was uh, Jerry. I can't think of his name. He was Rory Gallagher's bass player. Oh. And I learned that afterwards. But he was of at the time. I think he was having some problems in his life. But I only learned it after. And but you know he he he. You could tell he he wasn't. He was playing it a bit like maybe you'd try and play the bass, but just phenomenal. So, I mean, when you look back, and I'm sure, as you said, you've met lots of them in and around the Hollywood scene, and people's lives can change dramatically in over the space of a few years. Yeah. I mean, Rory was just a very, very, very sweet and good person. I mean, he didn't know my friend and I from Joe. We were just a couple of kids walking up, and, and but we recognized him, and I think he was thrilled about that. You know, uh, he didn't he didn't catch on as much in America. But if you're a musician and you're worth your salt, you knew who Rory Gallagher yeah. was. You know, and yes, listen to yes, taste yes. and all that wonderful stuff. Wonderful, uh, and wonderful he gave us yeah. passes to a show. He played the uh, he he played at I think it was the Palace that night and uh he had a couple of extra passes so we we got to go see him play and his little tiny room and he's like he he recognized this because we worked our way up to the stage you know and he's like shooting us with the guitar like as a machine gun and and just camping it up in the whole you know just doing the rory gallagher deal and uh oh boy he was just uh, he was something and i'm so glad that i got to meet him and, and got to see him play they made an impression. That was something you can always look back on and say that was. It was a Starwood. That was the club. It was the Starwood. Right. I've heard of the Starwood. Yeah, yes. yeah. <laughs> when you look back, there's so many interesting times from that. One one interesting point I was I came across when I was researching you was the the point about when you took your mom to see Star Wars. I love that story. Ah, well, now we're going into the UFO stuff. Oh, my mom, uh, I'll go back a little bit. When my mom told me that story about uh, working for Howard Hughes, at one point she also said that uh, we are not alone in the universe, and, and we know this. The government knows this, but they're not going to tell the public. Uh, and then that was all she, it was like she she told me this stuff because I was safe. I was a little boy. She thought I'd forget about it. Well, I went to, in fourth grade in grammar school, they had a show and tell kind of thing. What do your parents do? And I talked about my dad and then I talked about my mom. And I said, well, my mom used to work for Howard Hughes. She worked at a deep underground military facility, a city under the desert. And she says that uh, that we're not alone in the universe, that uh, there are aliens and that we the government knows this. So the teacher... <laughs> Called my mom and scheduled a parent-teacher conference. You know, as you know, your your son's telling our kids stories. And do you think that they thought you were lying, or your mom was a crackpot? No, they thought I was lying, and they thought I had a big imagination. So my mom had to kind of go along with that. And I remember her driving me home in the car, and she said, "Earl, I I'm so sorry, but I had to tell your teacher that you have a big imagination." She said. When I told you this, you were a little, little tiny boy, and I really didn't think you would remember it. I'm surprised that you remember all that. Now, your mom could get into really bad trouble. Your mom could go to prison. You can't talk about this. People don't know about it. They don't know about, you know, military bases that are underground. They, they don't, and they certainly don't know about, about uh, aliens. So you can't be talking about this. Um, 
but uh, but uh, my mom, there there were certain points where I got her to talk a little bit more. Usually, when I wasn't trying to, if I wanted her to spill more information, she would just walk away. She'd raise an eyebrow and and, and look humorless and, and walk away because she couldn't talk about it. And she started working in the 1970s again as, at an employment agency that she started running, but she was just doing all aerospace companies. She was getting scientists for, for she single-handedly populated the Rockwell Science Center that was next to Thousand Oaks, sort of between Thousand Oaks and Newberry Park area. Uh, she, she got, uh, she, she, she worked for Northrop, uh, Boeing, Lockheed, Skunk Works. Uh, she worked for all the aerospace companies. She eventually told me that she was a, a, a corporate headhunter. She said that there wasn't a name for it when I first started doing this, but uh, that's what I do, son. I'm, I'm actually a, a headhunter. <laughs> this was, you know, she said this like the last year she was back, you know, she was on earth. Because obviously when you got into ufology and, you know, you were, I can imagine for me, if I got into ufology and then I didn't know anybody in that kind of area, I'd be like looking for them. But you had obviously this fantastic woman, this source who was on your in, in your house and you wanted to pick her brains, I imagine, so many times. Was she... Did she kind of keep that secrecy for a long time? She had to. She kept her she kept her security clearances till the day that she passed away. But she uh, now 1977. This is another thing about my mom is that she kept getting cancers, uh, and and they weren't metastatic. They said that it seemed like she had been irradiated somehow. Now I okay. kind of put two and two together. If you have a a facility in the 1950s that's underground in the middle of nowhere, how do you power that up? You're probably using a nuclear pile of some sort. It would be the same thing that you do in a nuclear submarine, which we were working with at the same time back then. So they probably didn't know how to shield it properly yet. And, uh, and so my mom, unfortunately, you know, she just would have cancer after cancer pop up. Uh, back in 1977, she went for a checkup, and uh, everything was clear. And her doctor was close to the old uh, Sepulveda Hughes uh, facility. So she was at her old area, and she was being checked up for something that happened to her by from working for these people. And she got it all clear. Uh, we had watched Star Wars, and I'll never forget, the curtains were closing. And my mom started talking. It was 1977. It was the the three days after Star Wars, A New Hope started playing, the very first Star Wars. So we didn't really know anything about the movie except as a science fiction thing. And, you know, that's an impressive and, and beautifully done film. And she started talking. She said, son, you have no idea how close to reality that movie is. She said the different races, the different spaceships, uh, she said that it's, it's, it's realer than you will ever know. And she said a whole lot more too, but I, I was at the time, you know, I was, I, I something else, you know, I mean, I had my own little spiritual quest and I was actually taking pre-seminary courses at that point. I was, 
you know, 19 years old. And, and I was, uh, and I was going that direction. And this was an inconvenient truth. I didn't really know that aliens could fit into uh, that philosophy. So I was almost like, you know, la, 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 when she's telling me all this stuff that ironically for years I wanted her to talk about. <laughs> and she's finally talking about it. And at that point in my life, it was inconvenient. Um, but I'll never forget it. And uh, and that sort of took this to a different level for me. It, it personified it for me. How old were you then in your te late teens? 19. Born yeah. in 58, it was 77. So, yeah, I, was, I, was, I, I wasn't old enough to order a beer yet. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, not, not in this country anyway. Was that kind of a seminal moment when you kind of thought, you know, I want to get into this more. And I'm, you know, obviously my mom can only tell me so much, but what kind of started you then? What was, do you remember that catalyst that started you it, off? It was very strange because, you know, I would listen to Carl Sagan speak and he would make fun of UFOs. I would, you know, love to read Arthur C. Clarke's novels, you know, 2001 and all the sequels and, you know, Rendezvous with Rama, a wonderful writer. And he said that it was a bunch of bunk. Now, later on, I found out that's not true, that this is the face that he presented to the public and for Carl Sagan as well. Um, Carl Sagan started out, his first paper was on uh, ancient astronaut theory, uh, 1962. That was the first published paper. Um, and Arthur C. Clarke, now I'm, I'm close friends with J. Allen Hynek's uh, son, Paul Hynek, and he has the correspondence between Arthur Clarke and his father. And Arthur Clark told him, you know, uh, uh, Dr. Heineck was the head of Project Blue Book, I should mention. They had the little yes, I, TV I show yeah, about yeah, yes, a couple yes. of years ago. But uh, he was the real deal. And, and Arthur C. Clark said, I love the work that you're doing, and I think there's something to it. I can't say that in public, or they'd never let me go to another space shot. But uh, I really do. I, I, I know that we're not alone, and I think that... Uh, that some of the UFOs people are seeing are actually not ours and, and not, not swamp gas. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's, um, I'll give you my stance on it because, you know, people say, well, what do you believe? And I mean, I've always been interested in UFOs and kind of mystery. I, I've always liked mystery, you know, mm, and, yes. and those kind of things. And I'm, I always say, I, I think I had, I told this to Katie when she was on Katie Grabowski, when she was on the show, I'm, I'm, um, how will I put it? I'm a, a skeptical believer. So for me, I like to, I love watching all these kind of shows. And I, I mean, all of those, as you said, uh, Alan Hynek and, you know, Project Blue Book and all these shows. And, you know, nowadays, obviously, a lot of these shows are very dramatized and changed for entertainment. But for me, I'm kind of, I look at them and I go, it's quite interesting. And maybe 90% of it is not true. But there is always that 10% there that could be real. Uh, you know, I mean, at MUFON, and that's, you know, my mom telling me this in 1977, just when my mom passed away, I became sort of even more obsessed with with the phenomenon. And I, I just started really reading a lot of books on the subject. And, of course, you're correct. I mean, Dr. Hynek, 
at MUFON, when I joined the Mutual UFO Network as a field investigator, I decided that I wanted to wanted to look into this myself, that reading other people's books and getting other people's ideas was not good enough. In fact, oftentimes it was very confusing because there are so many different uh, different beliefs out there and ideas. Some people think that our visitors are malevolent. Some think they're pure benevolence. Others think they're indifferent. Uh, others don't think that they're there at all. And, and uh, the only way to really find out and it was to do it myself. And, uh, and I joined MUFON back in 1995 and became a field investigator. I, I took the test. I read the field investigator's handbook and, and took the classes, was mentored. And, uh, and I rose up in the ranks until, you know, for, for about four or five years, I was assistant state director and chief investigator and now I am state director of California for MUFON. Uh, I've personally closed 740 cases, I believe, is the number we're up to now. Um, and like Hynek said, 5%, about 5% of UFO reports that come in are interesting. Uh, the rest of them are usually people misidentify prosaic objects, uh, you know, Venus on the horizon or drones now, you know, little radio controlled drones, they flash and the lights go around and, you know, and then, and then the first time I ever saw one, it, I had to look twice, you know, what the hell is that? So, you know, but that 5% that you have left after ticking all the boxes, that's what keeps me going. And that's, what's interesting. And I find out of all the cases that I have you know, personally investigated and closed, I find that oftentimes the crazier the case, uh, the truer the case. It almost seems like there's an intentional bit of absurdity that uh, comes through with the real cases, almost like the universe is winking at us. Uh, and I do think that it's more of an interdimensional phenomenon than an interstellar. I think that they're coming from another, uh, maybe a parallel Earth, a parallel universe, uh, where perhaps the speed of light is not a speed limit. Uh, and that's, I, I do know that if they're coming from our own universe that they're using, uh, like wormholes or portals to go going to a, a higher plane, a higher universe where, uh, where they can get past uh, Newton's stringent laws, uh, you know, of compensation and things like that. Um, and we see this very often in a lot of the reports, the better reports. You'll see a UFO will pop into existence. Now, if you're thinking of Newtonian physics, that's impossible, right? I mean, we're, we're, we're sort of operating on a, on a quaint operating system right now as a species. We are still thinking in the nuts and bolts uh, conditions that Newton, you know, that Newton got when he was hit in the head with, the, you know, the the apple. <laughs> oh, that didn't really happen, but it's a good illustration, you know, and, and we're still going off of that. And, and, but we know that the, the reality is, is it's quantum mechanics is what the universe operates on things like spooky action at a distance where things will, you know, across the galaxy or even in another galaxy uh, will be paired with, with subatomic particles here. 
um, there's this weird connection. Kind of like a kind. You mean kind of like a ripple effect or something? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I I believe that you know for things to pop into existence or for them to be seen as solid and then something more fluid like a wave, uh, the way that light particles or or, or subatomic particles will react uh, when scientists. I mean, they found out that scientists could actually determine what a particle was going to look like depending on what they were expecting, that there is interaction between the mind and, and the actual universe that we live in. And that this this isn't science fiction. This is this is science, it's hard science. It's what you know they're dealing with at the you know the the Large Hadron Collider in Switzerland right now. And you know, and they'll see things pop into existence and, and seemingly pop out of existence. It's quite interesting, too, the fact that if there was or if there is an, another parallel dimension and things pop in and out of that, it would explain a lot of other mysteries that aren't even from the world Correct. of ufology. Like, you know, when people talk about Sasquatch, when people talk about, you know, um, ships <laughs> disappearing yes. and the Bermuda Triangle you know one day maybe when we understand it more it will say oh that's how that could have happened you know maybe that will come into existence one day we, we will understand more yes I, I agree i agree with you simon it's i mean to me it's the most interesting thing in the in the universe it, it goes along with what we know about science right now the the cutting edge stuff and uh you know, UFOs are large objects that act like the very smallest objects. They're massive objects that behave like subatomic particles. Uh, and somehow or another, it, it, it seems to be worldwide. Uh, there are hot spots. Southern California is a hot spot. I mean, in, in, as far as UFO reports that, that come in to MUFON, uh, other states and, and other countries you know, you might get like 10 UFO reports over a period of a couple months. Still, um, for example, I think like Chile and Italy are still among the top kind of countries too, aren't they? Yes. Yeah. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, South America, they they have a different uh, attitude about it. And the same goes for in Italy. Uh, uh, I think Canada. I mean, I think that, you know, a lot of it depends on, on how... Uh, you know, America, we are unfortunately more of a militant, militant kind of government. A friend of mine from uh, from South America told me this, and I never forgot it. You know, he uh, he he said, "Well, what are with what's with all these abductions and negative things that seem to happen around the phenomenon in America? That doesn't really happen here. It's you know, if you meet an alien, it, it's it's a good day, and people sleep UFOs, and but you know, it's not." And he said, "Well, maybe it's maybe it's because of the fact that you guys are sort of a militant country that you meet the militant aliens." It's like, oh, okay, <laughs> oh, 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 yeah, yeah, maybe yeah. so, maybe so. Well, it's it, it's funny actually because I remember uh, when I talked to Katie, I put this question to her, and she, I said to her. You know, from a, a European's perspective of American ufology, of course, we've grown up with, you know, UFOs on television, you know, close encounters of the third kind, fifth, fourth kind, all of these things. And so 
sometimes I think when Europeans look at it, they go, oh, there only seems to be aliens and UFOs in America because of the mainstream media. And also they, they kind of think it's like a little hysteria that because like what you said, if there's 5% of those cases that could be credible, there's another 95% where it could be hysteria, could be, you know, other other explanations. So when that gets populated, for example, even in the state of California, to the outsiders looking in, they could be thinking, no, how can they all be in one place? But the only thing I would say to that is maybe the fact we have to consider is that maybe like Chile, maybe Italy, maybe California, maybe there's some kind of portals there. Who knows? Yeah. Well, also I've heard some people even speak of Lee lines, you know, and there, and, and, uh, for instance, well, we, I, I just met with Kevin day, who is the radar, uh, commander on the, on the Nimitz. Yes. It was the Nimitz affair. It had the Princeton battleship and the Nimitz aircraft carrier. And they, back in 2004 had this encounter with this, they called it the Tic Tac UFO because it looked like one of the little Tic Tac breath loops, right? Except it was 40 feet across. And this thing was traveling at Mach 18 without making so much as a sonic boom. You should have heard 18 sonic booms. Should have sounded like an earthquake was going on. Uh, It was making 90 degree turns at that speed without turning into a fireball. Uh, it was a bona fide UFO that was under intelligent control. It played cat and mouse with the squadron of planes that they sent out. That was Commander David Fravor, wasn't it? Yes, David Fravor was the commander of of, of the squadron. And uh, Kevin was seeing these objects for a week off of Catalina Island. It was off the east side of Catalina Island. They were traveling. He said there were about 100 different objects. They were traveling from low Earth orbit all the way down to sea level and then shooting back up. And he kept reporting it and they're saying it's some glitch. It's a ghost in the machine. Well, this was like, if it was, they needed to find this out because this is the top technology that our military had as far as radar equipment went. So after a week of this, they finally sent that squadron out and and the rest is history. It made the front page of the New York Times. Took some years, took till 2017, but it, the story came out, you know, because there was video, there were multiple witnesses, and uh, the witnesses were the best witnesses. They're all trained observers, pilots. Uh, the best radar man in the country was Kevin Day. Uh, and, uh, but Kevin has, uh, now he's been doing his own UFO privately uh, investigatory group that he's been working with, which is a very small group of scientists and Kevin himself. And uh, they've been going out to the same area where they saw the Tic Tac. Uh, I have had multiple, multiple reports from that same area from amazing witnesses. Recently, I had a witness come forward who's a commercial pilot who he was camping on the east side of Catalina Island with his wife and his brother-in-law. And he saw this thing that was a golden sphere. Uh, He was very good at dead reckoning. It was 10 miles away from where he was. So it was exactly between the shoreline of of the California coast and, and Catalina Island. It was like equidistant between the two. And he said that you could see this golden ball. It must have been hundreds and hundreds of feet across 
going out of the water into the air, doing a cross pattern. He called his wife and his brother-in-law out to, so that you would have a couple other, you know, have four more eyes on this that he's watching. It's something that's not supposed to exist. They watched this thing shoot back down into the water and come out again. It did this little dance again, and then it shot up out of the atmosphere. Uh, when I checked the coordinates with Kevin, and I didn't know what the coordinates were for the Tic Tac sighting. They were the exact same coordinates right down to the last number. Uh, really? The latitude and long longitude were exactly the same. Was that the same time? No. No, this happened three years ago. This happened three years ago. Now, the guy who was he, the pilot, he was still a pilot. And just recently, he, he's gone on sabbatical. He, he had to leave his job because uh, they, he and his wife had a baby. So he sort of doing, decided to do the house husband thing. So he was finally free to come forward and, and talk about the sighting that he had. And I spoke with him, his wife, and his brother-in-law. They were all sober, intellectual people. And uh, and the pilot himself is a trained observer, and, and his uh, his numbers they were exactly exactly what what Kevin saw on the radar when they saw the Tic Tac. Uh, we've had many other sightings in that same area, and they always seem to be UFOs that go in and out of the water, and or that just pop into existence in the middle of the air over there. I had a, a commercial a commercial sailor with his crew just recently put in a report and this was just like two months ago where they saw something it looked like there were two moons in the sky again it was a spherical object that was hovering over their boat and the whole crew saw this thing and, and uh, they were scared scared to death they didn't know what it was this this is, is something that's not supposed to exist for you as a, an, an investigator because I know obviously you have protocols and you you know procedures, but it must be very difficult nowadays as opposed to even ten years ago because of drones, but as well also because of you know editing software with video and everything, you really have to delve much deeper, no? Oh yeah, with with video, I mean you hope that the person will take digital photos as well as a video if they see a UFO, because that way I've got the EXIF data from the photos. No such thing for a video, you know. You get so that you can recognize CGI pretty quickly. I do a lot of detective work myself. Uh, if something looks too good to be true, it probably is. And that's, I have to wear a skeptic's hat more than anybody else because I'm putting my name to these things. My reputation is on the line. And out of the 740 cases I've closed, I've got like 50 unknowns. There's 50 that I can't explain. And going back to that point I mentioned earlier about hysteria and about, you know, if you want something to be true, you know, hard enough that you can make it appear. Do you believe that, you know, people are out there looking for that? And then if they see something which they think is they, their mind turns it into something else? I think that that does happen sometimes. I mean, I'll get a lot of reports where people will just see a Mylar balloon spinning, you know. I mean, lights in the sky don't excite me very much, and that's what a lot of my reports that come in are. Um, even if it seems to be up, uh, 
in outer space, like a satellite that's moving strangely, well, we have spy satellites that can go out of orbit and can go and take photos and do whatever now. So even if you see something moving that seems to be outside of the atmosphere and it's kind of erratically moving, it can still be one of ours easily. So it, it really kind of whittles your reports down to, you know, you want to have multiple witnesses when you can, hopefully, you know, you want to have good photographs with the EXIF data on there, along with a video, if you get a video. Um, usually when people have a sighting, there's a, the, I, I, I'm getting to where I don't think that people have accidental sightings. I think that uh, that our visitors are well aware of, of who is out there and that certain people are going to see these things because perhaps their influence in public or, or it's the right person or for their, you know, for whatever reason, some people are contacted. Uh, sometimes people are taken too. You know, I do work as a member of MUFON's experience or resource team. And I talk with a lot of people who've been uh, abducted and visited. And that seems to happen around the, around the phenomenon. We had uh, a recent case, we've had a, a flap of V shaped craft recently with lights on the underside, on the ventral side. And what I've found is, is that there are certain markers of commonality that you'll find in UFO reports and particularly in visitation reports that are around a UFO. Uh, and and you, you get to where you can recognize these commonalities. And many of them are not known in the public. And I'm not even going to tell you what most of them are because I don't want people to know what the commonalities are because it's how I can kind of sleuth stuff out. But um, one thing that I will talk, I will mention and, and that I see from over and over and over again is there's something about the lights on a UFO that will mesmerize a person and put them into a very different space. I think that actually that, that our visitors, that they, this, this, this woman who's a clinical psychologist and her adult son were driving home and they saw this V-shaped craft hanging there. As they got closer, this thing rolled over purposefully so they could see its lights, which started flashing on the underside. And they, begot, they went into what I would call a hypnagogic state that time became very malleable and slower. Uh, sounds became quieter. They call it the Oz effect. There is a word for it in ufology. And these guys had the classical symptoms of the Oz effect, where they lost track of time. It, they could have been sitting there for five minutes or an hour. They really did not know and could not tell. Um, once this was over, they saw that they saw the craft move away and, and it went like rooftop level until it disappeared into the vanishing point. And it was almost as if the, the mom and, and the son had, had discussed amongst themselves that they weren't going to mention it. Like it was, shh, you know, we weren't supposed to see this. I hear that so often. It's like, we didn't talk about it. In fact, I, you know, a lot of people were forget about it. You know, the, their minds will be wiped and something will, will, break that memory so it comes back to the surface. It's an awful lot like when somebody suffers shock and they forget a car accident and then something will bring that back to mind or something that they went through that was traumatic. Well, they got home and finally the son turned to the mom and said, did you see that? What happened? 
And she said, yeah, she, of course I saw that, you know, and I don't know what happened. It was a UFO. Well, the mom started getting visitations that she was taken. And she, the husband is a medical doctor. And I will say that these two people are, are pillars in their community. I, I have to keep their names anonymous. They're on record. And uh, and this was actually MUFON uh, awarded this one of the five best cases of the year uh, this year. The husband, uh, this, this case went on and on because the mom was being visited. She was being taken by the gray, proverbial gray aliens that you see. And there was another tall alien that looked more like uh, an insect that looked really scary, but was highly telepathic and would calm her and, and would talk with her tele- telepathically though. And, uh, and this is an ongoing case. It's still going on. Uh, the, the father is, is a medical doctor and he becomes paralyzed so that he doesn't go and I guess interfere with what's, what's happening. Um, this is a, actually a very, very good UFO case or multiple witnesses. And we have other witnesses that see these V-shaped craft. Uh, they're common. I had a, an astronomy club with tel- Celestron telescopes on the roof of LA City College or Valley College out here. Uh, the rooftop, there were nine different students and their instructor that saw this thing. Uh, described an exact same vehicle. Like that point you mentioned earlier about um, the whatever is visiting, whatever wants to contact those specific people or, you know, can pick out those people in, on a mountain range or wherever. So maybe maybe there's something there that if it wants to be seen, it will be seen. But if it doesn't, it won't. Yes. I think that it's very, very specific to who sees a UFO. But I do think that uh, that it's an interactive phenomenon. And if you poke at the universe, you can't be surprised if it pokes back. <laughs> and that's perhaps what happened with me, although I think it's also familial, too. We see people with military families with a background of and, – and, and once you dig into the, the, the history, you'll find out that the grandmother and the mother or the father had, had similar – things happen and, and similar experiences. It's very, very common. I think another reason why we have such activity in California is, is while we have a very high level of, of the aerospace community and what's going on with that is, is centered here. Uh, all the way down to Vandenberg uh, Space Force Base. So they actually changed it from the Air Force Base to the Space Force Base. Um, I think that, you know, according to my mom, there were a lot of black projects that were going on that were centered here. A lot of, uh, you know, the black triangular craft are seen out by Plant 42 in Palmdale, California, which is where Lockheed Skunk Works is based. And I think that we've that we've actually gathered uh, anomalous materials and propulsion systems from, you know, there's been reported crashes and such and, and with again, with, with just amazingly the best witnesses that you could ask for. Do you think then that because of those crashes and so on and Roswell and everything, do you think then that the military are, you know, that some of those things people see in the sky could be military craft and that we're 
we're maybe like five generations behind the capabilities of their craft, but we have like really advanced craft on Earth. Yes, I think I think that we're in the early stages of real space travel and that we have the ability. It's so expensive, I think, that it can only be used for black projects. And I think that it's still dangerous uh, technology. But, uh, you know, looking at the history of the triangular craft, uh, they started in the early 60s. The ones that people saw were kind of boxy looking and now they're very sleek. They're black. They're secretive. Um, and and uh, I had a police officer that saw one hovering uh, hovering over his neighbor's house, the end of the flight path of uh, Bakersfield Airport. This guy, again, you know, he's a a life a lifer, uh, a mucky muck in the police department. There had no reason to put in a UFO report. It's bad for your career. But he saw something that he wanted to report. He was close enough to this thing. It was it was about 40 feet across, uh, perfectly silent. Uh, and he was close enough that he could see recess in the side where there, he could see piping and such. That sounds a little like that Project Aurora, no? It does sound like Project Aurora to me or something similar. I think, you know, and, and now certain people I've talked with that are in aerospace, if you get the right one, you'll kind of get the nudge, nudge, wink, wink. And they'll say, well, I can't really talk about that, you know, but, you know, I have a friend who is is uh, a rocket scientist and, and he and his father were driving and were actually hovered over by one of the black triangles. And he said, you know, if you give me a, a if you give me a budget and a team of scientists, I'll whip one of those out for you in about three weeks. <laughs> he thinks that uh, perhaps they're using uh, uh, that that it's like the next class of dirigible that they maybe are using some kind of anti gravity. I think the Benfield Brown effect. If you look that up, uh, Townsend Brown was a scientist that was messing with the lifting platforms that you get a lift from by highly elect electrifying them. That's an interesting point, though, because. Even, you know, we, we spoke earlier about uh, Werner von Braun, and but another, like, scientist who contributed so much towards, I think, the military nowadays was Nikola Tesla. Oh. And some of, the pro- some of the projects he worked on, we, we've never known about. So there could be a lot of, like, air, um, electric levitation, all sorts of things happening there, no? Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. I think that, you know, they were very interested in Tesla's uh, discoveries. They pretty much raided his apartment when he died, and uh, you know the FBI took, took all, all the that. things. Yeah, the Pentagon was very interested, and and that was right exactly what he was dealing with. And I think that these are probably ours because they all look the same. They have the same light configuration. Uh, people mention you know the ventilation systems that they see on the side, and you can even see that on this model. You know that is similar to the craft from the Phoenix Lights. No. Yeah, except that the Phoenix Lights craft was was like a mile across. So yes. I don't know. I think that we have our UFOs. I think that there are some that aren't ours. I, I I believe that this was, you know, I mean, von Braun was famous for saying that uh, we were helped. We were helped to get to the moon. We were helped, and 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 he he would say helped by them. Helped by them, and you know, let's. Uh... Let's just go in a different direction here for a moment. So 
with you know all these programs secret of skinwalker ranch and the high strangeness and everything do you believe that the like that cattle mutilation and everything is linked to the same things or do you believe that that's maybe militant you know i i'm i'm not sure about the cattle uh, mutilations uh it seems to happen near a lot of the you know places where they we're testing the atom bomb and, and, and we're doing all that. And perhaps there are aliens checking to see if we're, we've irradiated ourselves beyond the point of, you know, no return, or perhaps it's our military. Um, maybe it's a joint project. I honestly don't know. You hear a lot of weird stuff and there's some weird stuff that's true. I mean, what's going on at Skinwalker uh, is a real thing, and and they they are they they have portals that open up over there, and stuff comes through. And there are certain people that seem to have a gift at opening and closing portals. Uh, my friend Kenneth Day, the the scientists believe that when he's with them, when he's not there, they don't see anything, but when he's along with them, then it seems like stuff pops up. And 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 they recently. Uh, they had this equipment up in Seal Beach this secreted on this cliff house that was overlooking the area where the Tic Tac was seen. And they were picking up gamma rays before something opened up in front of them. And these scientists were not you followed they were not UFO guys. These are just physicists and rocket scientists. And and apparently they were jaw dropped. Because you, the only time you'll see a gamma ray is if there's a black hole, you know. But yeah. it's, it's, you know, it, 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 gamma rays will escape from a, a quasar or a, a neutron star, you know, will throw them off. But they're not supposed to be thrown off uh, off of Catalina Island from a specific spot in the sky. There, you know, as I said, you watch a lot of these shows, and you know, you, you take away different things from different shows. But the one thing that I always think about with Skinwalker Ranch is that obviously Robert Bigelow, you know, he's involved in the aerospace industry. But part of me as a kind of civilian that's looking on goes, did he find stuff there that then he took and made his industry and made his company huge? Because, yes. You know, when you watch when you watched him investigating and you. Yes. Yeah. I, I, that's what my opinion. I think that. He obviously probably has NDAs with the government and things he can't talk about. But you have to imagine that he found something there that obviously made his company what it is. Absolutely. I hear very, very, very strange reports about Bigelow and Skinwalker from multiple people. Things I know is, is that it is military based. Is you know The Pentagon is very, very interested in what they found over on that ranch. Uh, Bigelow got what he wanted out of that and he got out of it. You know, he doesn't have anything to do with Skinwalker now. He's on to other things. But apparently he's got meta metals that they've found from UFO crash sites that he's very interested in and that they can't explain terrestrially. Uh, and apparently he's, uh, he's very interested. He's trying to find, figure out the propulsion systems that uh, our visitors use. And as far as what I have heard is, is that uh, just like most good ufologists, he believes that it is all interdimensional, that it's coming 
to Earth through portals from somewhere else. Uh, and this is where Jacques Vallée found himself, you know, one of my favorite favorite thinkers in ufology, as well as J. Allen Hynek. He, he eventually decided that it was that it was almost certainly a dimensional phenomenon. Uh, to make it even stranger, I think that it's from it's an interstellar phenomenon from another dimension. <laughs> you know, I don't think it's from other star systems. They are aliens, but they're not ours, maybe. You have to look at this from a, a scale, a perspective of scale, too, because, you know, we look at the ant and we think the ant doesn't understand us. And the ant looks at us and probably, like, understands us in some way. But I think the you know the in the the evolution of humans and however intelligent we think we are, I think if there is something visiting us, you know, an interdimensional craft or beings, they are so far ahead of us that we can never understand in this lifetime. And not just about being skeptics, but even if you have the most open mind, I think we'll never be able to understand until maybe they would, as you said, abduct you and take you away permanently and teach you because we don't have the capabilities on this planet to understand something so far ahead of us. People report uh, downloads of information. Uh, another police officer. I mean, these guys don't have, it is bad for your career to say that you've had a UFO experience. But I had a police officer who was on duty in his cruiser, and he was he he stopped at this bridge that he'd usually go and check for you know riffraff or whatever you know, and and uh, he got back into his car. He's doing his report, and he said that he saw this bright light outside of his windshield, and uh, it got closer and closer, and then suddenly he said that uh, he he had forty five minutes of missing time. Uh, when he came back, he said that he felt like he, he had to get, he couldn't breathe. He had to take these deep breaths. Uh, this guy started having nighttime. He would, he would go to sleep and he would have a recurring dream where he would see this small minuscule hand with like a little pointer that was teaching him trigonometry and, and, and high maths and, and stuff. That, and he was a D student. He was a D student in math, is what he told me. Said that uh, he was another right-brained kind of guy. But at the end of a month, he had full understanding of what he believed was uh, zero-point uh, energy, the the theorem for it. Uh, he he was aghast, uh, amazed, horrified, but yet amazed, and he was, you know, going to. <laughs> have somebody you know write everything out for him that he could remember and it was like his mind was in suddenly wiped and he was told this will come back when it's needed uh he got a hold of me he wanted to be uh hypnotically regressed he thought maybe that would be a way to get back this information that they gave him um and i gave him you know i gave him a couple of numbers of you know i'm careful about hypnotic regression because you know, if you have the wrong person, they can lead the witness. But I have a couple of people with, that uh, are not involved with the UFO phenomena that, that are, you know, hypnotherapists. So, uh, but as far as I know, he was not able to get back that information. They told him this will come back to you when it's needed. 
And a lot of people are told that they'll have, uh, this is another thing that seems a phenomenon that's happening where people will get downloads of information and then it's compartmentalized for later on. And, uh, you know, I don't know why a police officer would go and make up such a far-fetched story, get emotional on the phone. And, and I know that he's who he said he was. I mean, I'll ask to see a badge number and, and, and ID and, you know, I have somebody telling me that they're an aerospace engineer or a cop or firefighter or what have you. I want to see. I want to. I want to see some proof there. Here's who he said he was. That's the thing. Like, it must be very frustrating when you have a case where you kind of feel that maybe the people are trying to fool you. I, I had one. Uh, there was one. It looked highly produced video of a UFO, and I didn't really believe it was what I was looking at and so i just did a google search and found that the person owned a company that you know their motto was cgi realer than life and then i found i found the it was a woman i found her on facebook and i found the day that she put her ufo report in her the evening and, and she had a picture of her and two friends sitting around a bong smoking Hot, you know, really? <laughs> at <the> table. <laughs> I'm going. Okay, so I know what happened here. You know, she somebody was, had a good idea. Yeah, she had a good idea. She thought that this would bolster. You know, I I tricked Mufon. You know, bolster her resume, and and she she had to smoke a little bit to get the nerve up to submit her report, and it went down as a hoax. It was a keystroke hoax. Yeah. Also, in this kind of modern age of Instagram and TikTok. When you have people trying to go viral with videos where there's a lot of, you know, fake, fake things happening, you that's obviously seeping into the ufology world because you're probably getting creators trying to create content that's saying, oh, no, this is real. I'm sure that happens quite a bit. I don't get a lot of videos that I like once in a long while. You know, we had one that was in Wilmington, California, that a little girl took. She grabbed her auntie's iPhone and she accidentally took some photographs of it first and then she figured out how to work the video and she got a video of this perfect saucer shaped very bright object like bright as a welder's torch that just slowly cruising across the skyline and it goes behind a building and you hear this little 10 year old girl going well that spaceship just went behind that building you know and uh, it was, we had the EXIF data from her photos as we knew exactly where it happened. And, uh, you know, it wound up being a MUFON journal uh, uh, report, you know, it's for my old uh, state director and friend, uh, Jeff Krause, who's uh, a mentor of mine. For you, you know, looking back over the cases you've had, all of the cases, is there one case throughout your career with MUFON? that really always stands out to you to this day? Mm. There's a few, but uh, maybe the, the one that that hits me the most is uh, it's an abduction case. Uh, it was the first case I ever closed as an unknown. Uh, I did so much research on this. Uh, it was an oil worker who uh, he and his wife were driving to uh, the sister-in-law's house to show off their new infant. And they pulled their car over to the side so he could use nature's bathroom. It was kind of late in the evening because he had to work his uh, 
regular shift and they were going at night. And uh, they wound up having eight hours of missing time. But the stars, more or less, he, he was looking up at the dark sky and he saw the stars collecting like in a circle. He called his wife out there and said, what, what's, what's that? You know, it was like this halo. And they watched them dropping to the desert floor. This was out near, uh, this was out near uh, Edwards Air Force Base, Richmond, California, where this happened, middle of the desert. And his wife was sit, was standing behind him now. He didn't see her move, uh, but she was behind him. And, and she spoke in this weird, almost mechanical voice and said, don't worry, they're not going to harm us. They watched these lights drawing towards them. And he was he was starting to really feel afraid. He didn't know what to do, but he was also like paralyzed to the spot. He turned around and he saw this red ball-shaped object that was moving around in the scrub there by the side of the road. Um, it was this bright ruby red light sphere about the size of a, a football, you know, a, a, a proper football, a European football, right? And and so uh, he felt like he was being played with almost like a you play with a kitten with a laser pointer. His attention was being drawn over there. So he's watching this thing and suddenly they were passed by, it was like a silver flying saucer. He said that it was right out of a movie. He said that it just, it zipped past them so quickly and you could see the moon reflected in its sides. It was, it was uh, chromed, uh, no surface features, no windows, just like a little cupola on top and, but no surface features at all. Uh, eight hours later, he and his wife found themselves standing, uh, leaning up against the bumper of their station wagon. Uh, the the boys were asleep still in the, the middle seat of the station wagon. The baby was in the car seat. Uh, it's almost like time had stopped for the family. Um, the woman wouldn't talk about it. She 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 remembered it happening, but she. She became very religious in the way that she dealt with it. She eventually divorced the man uh, because he he was sure that it was aliens and that they were abducted. She wanted to say it was the devil and was lying to them. And it was, you know, it's funny, isn't it? How abductions, you know, because we we hear of so many other things that happen on, you know, in our lives like wars, PTSD, and so on. But obviously, with alien abduction cases, the PTSD is really high too, no? Oh yeah, no, it's it's uh, ontological shock is what people feel. It's like your sense of reality is pulled out from under you, the way that a magician would pull a tablecloth out from under the dishes. Your life is still there, all the pieces are still there, but your sense of reality is is no longer there. It's it's the the root and, and base of, of reality that people have. And in some ways, I think that maybe that's the main uh, thing that they're trying to do. They're trying to get us to think differently. You know, we think in such nuts and bolts terms about everything. And, and we keep on uh, doing wars on repeat. And and we hate each other because of skin color. I mean, you know, people, you know, they say that they want to meet aliens, but if they meet humans with a different color of skin or a different accent they, they feel like they're being invaded so of course you know i mean people wonder why they don't land on the white house lawn and and well they would be shot at and nuked and you know, 
Yeah, it's like cast out. you know, we are are not ready to enter the space age. You know, Star Wars is not what our visitors. That's that's not the normal arc of 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 this. You know, if you go out and you're dealing with other civilizations and 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 cultures, uh, you you can't have a propensity to to destroy and kill everything that you don't understand or be afraid of everything. So I think we are trying to change our sense of of, of what reality is. For sure, and. For you personally, you know, for, for me, I've never had any kind of experience, but have you had, like, before you became, you know, a MUFON investigator and, or even after, have you had some experiences? I've had an experience. I've had an experience. When I first became a field investigator, I'd never had an experience before that. But our room flooded with light. It happened three nights during a week. Um, I remember the entities. They came through the wall. It was like a portal. They opened it up. Uh, there was no room between our house and our neighbor's house to park a spaceship. Uh, you know, there's just a little alleyway there. So, yes. it was, but I could see distance and these things came through and I couldn't move. It took blood and energy. It lasted about 10, 15 minutes. I don't think I was taken. I think that they do house calls. Yeah, <laughs> Doctors don't, but uh, our visitors do apparently. Uh, my wife remembers the the house flooding with light. Um, she does not remember seeing entities. Although, you know, the second night that this happened, she like shook me and woke me up and 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 said, "You need to tell your little friends that they need to leave us alone." You know, I already have insomnia, and she's like pacing and. Um, but she doesn't remember. You know, they they wiped her memory of of everything except for the weird light with no source it flooded our house. This is why I believe that people don't see these things randomly. I think that uh, our visitors were well aware of that I was going to be representing alien investigation of alien sightings and, and this sort of thing in, in California. And, uh, and so they wanted to get me in the loop, whatever that may be. Yeah. Do you think that there's lots of, you know, investigators around the world and everything that once they start investigating or they go into that world that whoever is watching them or, or, you know, if there are entities there, do you think then they become more of a target? Not in a, not in a hostile way, but as in they're more on their radar. Yes. It's, it's, it's a, it's a pattern. I kept this to myself for a long time. I mean, my uh, state director is very nuts and bolts about the phenomenon. And I told him and I thought he was going to fire me on the spot. It's like, you know, oh my God, you know, I just, you know, made this guy a field investigator and he's getting visits from aliens. You know, what have I done? Um, and I, I really kept it to myself, but I decided after hearing similar stories from other field investigators that when we got new field investigators that I owed them that caveat that they needed to know that uh, you're not some, you're not like a scientist looking into a microscope at something that's separate from you. You're on the microscope slide once you start looking at it. And uh, if you disturb the universe, it may disturb you back. It's just the, a pattern and it happened to me. And you need to know that, you know, before you start investigating that that is that that is there is that risk you know and i know a lot of people that do this i'm not the only person with this weird story 
a lot of field investigators. I had never seen a UFO before. It's as if it opened up a portal for that in my life. And after I had that experience, uh, I had two sightings. And one was very close up and personal. Uh, it was a V-shaped craft, although it looked very boxy. It didn't look streamlined at all. It looked like alien juvenile delinquents or something put this together in their backyard. But there it was. It had weight to it. It was hanging anomalously in the sky. And the closer I got to it, the dimensions became foreshortened. It looked like it was right there next to me. I looked like I was about 40 feet away from it. And the closer I got to it, it looked like it was a mile away and, and, and maybe a mile across. So I think it was a teachable moment. I think that they're, you know, that once you are made contact with, they have very specific ways of, of teaching you things and of, of uh, letting you understand this strange, strange phenomenon. You know? And uh, so you talk with a lot of UFO investigators, you'll, you'll hear a lot of stories like mine. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. And I mean, obviously in that world now as well, you know, and with all some of the UFO investigators become kind of mini TV personalities, you know, and like you have Louis Elizondo and Stephen Greer and James Fox and these people, you know, um, so does it, is there a kind of a line then when an investigator goes into television where, the TV companies are maybe going, oh, well, can't we just add a bit of drama to it? And you're like, you know, it must get difficult because you say, well, yeah, but I want to tell the truth. I want to tell what happened, but they want to put a spin on it. You have to be careful. You have to be careful. I mean, on one hand, I want people to know about this. I think it's important that the public is aware. That's the most important thing that's happening in, in our world. It has to do with human evolution and where we're going to go as a species. And, uh, and there's hope there. There's hope that if there are intelligent creatures out there who have gone past, you know, having nuclear weapons and they, they have this high level of technology. They survived all this stuff. And so we can as well. It, it, I'd like to know how they survived all of this and how they got past their warlike ways. Or, you know, are we are is the warlike thing just is that a human thing? I, I don't know. So all these things are so important and, and you do want to share this stuff, but I'm only, uh, what I've decided is, is, you know, I have to look into the productions, you know, I've, I've done a couple of TV things, uh, and not all, uh, TV shows about UFOs and not all UFO celebrities or whatever you want to call them are, are created equal. You know, some are, you know, some are, if, if they're asking for lots of money from you to show you, to, aliens or you know that doesn't work like that you don't want to give people your 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 money you know unless you want to support a group like mufon or or a tip or, or yeah different donations and things yeah but uh yeah they they are our, our visitors they don't work for anybody they don't charge you know they don't do you know they, they don't do air shows for for dollars you know so you have to be careful but you know, I'm 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 only responsible for my part of a particular TV show, and wherever it goes after that, I, I can't really do anything about it. 
I was on a recent show, the Demi Lovato theme, and actually they got rid of most of what I had to say. They got rid of everything I said. They didn't see me walk into the room and walk out, you know, where they have a, a support group for for experiencers. And uh, and then Stephen Greer and there were a few other people that I don't really have that much, you know, respect for. Was, uh, I didn't know that where they were going to take it. They, they brought the guys, the UFO bros were part of it. And I do like those guys. You know, I did a Area 51 show with them and they were scientific and they were great, you know, great to work with. Um, but then they, they went and they, they that same show inter, interviewed another guy who I think is a government disinformation agent, you know. <laughs> so you can't, you can only be responsible for your little bit. No, and, and that that's a really interesting thing, that disinformation, because obviously, you know, some people believe that the whole UFO thing started as a propaganda thing by the Americans to keep the Russians away. And then, you know, using whatever the information they had, amplify it and say, oh, no, it, it, it really is UFOs. So nowadays we live in a world of misinformation and disinformation. And unfortunately, I imagine in your world that happens quite a bit. Yeah, you, just, you have to keep an open mind, but you also have to hold on to your your sense of science. Your BS detector uh, has to be working overtime. But you you there there are strange strange elements to this phenomenon and it seems to have a certain level of, of absurdity that is built into the best cases um you know i mean heineck knew this jock valet knows this uh anybody that you want to take seriously understands that uh there's definitely it's almost like the universe is laughing at us or winking at us you know it's part of it. It's really interesting, you know, and, you know, I, I'm going to let you go now, but I want to thank you for coming on. And, you know, it's, it's always interesting because I, I love hearing, you know, people's perspectives on it because for the people out there who believe in it or don't believe in it or are on the fence, you know, I think information is power. And the more we know, the more we can make our mind up. And, you know, of course, I understand in this world, People can say, oh, those people are crackpots or whatever, because some people don't want to even dip their foot in the water to see, is it hot or cold? But I think nowadays you have to open your mind to the possibility that of that 100%, if there is 5% that could be credible, we should look into it, no? The Pentagon says that it's a real phenomenon, that it's not us. If it's not us, it's not China, it's not Russia, who is it? And they, 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 you know, broke the silence after, you know, I mean, the Robertson panel, they convened back in 1952, where they decided they would use ridicule as a method to quell the interest in, in the UFO phenomenon publicly. And uh, they got, you know, people like Carl Sagan and Asimov and Clark and all the top scientists that were in the public eye to discount this. But later on, many of these guys went on record. I mean, you know, just the people that come out to the MUFON Symposium. We had, you know, uh, the second man to walk on walk on the, the, the moon. You know, Buzz Aldrin was at the MUFON Symposium two years ago. Um, actually, uh, Neil Armstrong on a, on a 
Cruz uh, made sure that he was sitting at the table with Dr. Hynek. That's who he wanted to sit with. He could have he could have been with anybody. They were, you know, Isaac Asimov was on the same cruise, all kinds of people. But no, nope, uh, he wanted to sit with J. Allen Hynek so he could talk UFOs. Apparently they saw something. They saw something on the moon. Uh, so it's a very real thing. The people on the highest echelons of government know this. Uh, they forever and ever didn't want the public to know. My mom was correct. It's realer than you'll ever know, son. But it looks like there's finally a crack in the dam. Yes. Well, you know, thanks very much for coming on the show. And it was a pleasure listening to you and your, you know, hearing your life experience. And, you know, obviously we wish you the best for future projects and, and future investigations. And we definitely, definitely love to have you on the show in the future, you know, because I think I think you have so many stories and so many things you can teach us and tell us, you know. So thank you very much. Certainly. You just got the tip of the iceberg here, Simon. And I'll say, you know, if you guys are interested in, in MUFON and finding out more, just go to MUFON, M-U-F-O-N, MUFON.com. Uh, I highly recommend that. If you want to get a hold of me, probably the easiest way is on social media. If you go to Facebook, I'm Earl Gray. And uh, it'll say MUFON, you know, California State Director of MUFON. That's how to find me. It's not Earl Gray Anderson. It's just plain Earl Gray, my stage name on there. When we put out the podcast, we will put all the relevant links as well. So we can, Beautiful. We can point people in the right direction. So, Earl, listen, it's been, it's been a pleasure. And I want to thank you very much. And, you know, thank you. Earl Gray Anderson, everybody. Thank you so much, Simon. It was a great time. Take care now. Keep looking up. Okay, thank you very much, Earl. That was really interesting. I loved hearing your stories about MUFON and your experience there and investigative reports, you know, to do with UFOs and high strangeness all across the United States. So, you know, it's a great story and I'm sure people are going to want to investigate even further. Thank you for coming on the show and taking the time to tell us your story. Earl Gray Anderson. So, everybody, I hope you enjoyed the show today. My name is Simon Kay. This is the Collective Whisper podcast. Please follow and share this show with all your friends. And until the next time we talk to you guys, take care of yourself, look after everyone else. Bye-bye. Yeah.